0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine, the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website,
1: www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Continuing the series on British military deployments over the last 200 years, in this episode of Black's History Week, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's Deputy Editor, Graham Stewart, about how the British Task Force liberated the Falkland Islands from Argentinian occupation in 1982. Professor Black, in 1982, the Royal Navy was still the third largest in the world. How would the Defence Secretary in Margaret Thatcher's government, John Knott, how would his um, 1981 Defence Review have uh, risked making the defence of the Falkland Islands impossible if uh, it had gone through before the Argentinians invaded the Falkland Islands?
0: Well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, essentially, Knott was in continuation with a trend in British defence policy since the 60s, um, that of concentrating on NATO area commitments and NATO commitments uh, more particularly within that area. So, defense of home waters, defense of the North Atlantic against what was perceived as the major direction of Soviet submarine advance. And the submarine force was the leading element of the uh, Soviet Navy. And at this point, there wasn't really a Chinese Navy to think about. And from the uh, mid 60s onwards, which of course is when the project for the through deck carriers were cancelled um there was a withdrawal famously in the phrase from east of suez but in naval terms that meant long range naval capability and there's a whole host of factors linked to that we've discussed some of them in uh, recent programs, we could take them further. Uh, fiscal uh, factors were clearly important. But on the other hand, there were there was expenditure on the Navy was rising. But of course, the area that was rising more particularly was, apart from what we've already discussed, the fact that the nuclear deterrent was moving for, to the Navy from the Air Force. Um, so that I think it's fair to say that the Uh, weakening of the navy in distant waters was not something that was unique to Knott. And although uh, he took the blame for it, um, that is historically an unwise conclusion.
1: Mm, So it would be fair to say in summary that that John Knott was really trying to focus um, the British Armed Forces and particularly the Royal Navy on the Cold War and the North Atlantic, North Sea uh, theatre. And um, it it was a failure to perceive that the um, kind of um, quasi-fascist military dictatorship in Argentina was serious about its rhetoric with the Falklands. So was this a failure of political risk analysis and intelligence, or was it actually in line with um, at least part of the Foreign Office's view that uh, um, the, the, the threat from Argentina could be managed by appeasing it.
0: Well, there's a whole host of interesting questions there, Graham, and you've pushed quite a lot together there. I'm, one really has to almost stop you after each phrase to to consider this. Um, the, first of all, individual defence secretaries obviously play a role in defence reviews, but defence reviews are more than the role of individual defence secretaries. So that's point number one. Point number two, uh, there was a general bipartisan uh, strand, direction, thrust, whatever phrase you wish to use, each of them can carry different connotations in British, British defence policy towards NATO commitments. That clearly meant an issue of prioritisation, so that, let us say, um, in uh, 1982, uh, a uh, British uh, territory in the Pacific had been attacked, let's say, Peru had attacked Pitcairn uh, there would have been difficulties also or maybe more so in dealing with that than dealing with the Falklands so I think one has to be careful here there are obvious issues for the military of prioritization as you know I've written a long book on strategy and my own view is that strategic thinking is very weak and that one of the keys with strategy is to understand the interaction of prioritization and tasking. You obviously always rhetorically empower the choice that you like by using terms that uh, go with it, prudent defense of national interest. You obviously rhetorically uh, weaken those elements you don't like by using terms like appeasement. So somebody in 20 years' time could be writing at the moment and saying, Why are you, Graham, on this? Uh, afternoon not talking to me about the fact that we are not acting vigorously against Iran when it's attacking British oil tankers, all right? So let's be clear about this. It is very easy in hindsight to use the term appeasement. That doesn't always help. doesn't mean that it doesn't take part, uh, that, that it isn't a role, but doesn't always help. Now, we then move specifically to the Falklands. Yes, there was an intelligence failure, And Williams, the ambassador in Argentina, lost, uh, his career ended as a result of that. So there was an intelligence failure. There's no two ways about that. Um, But the intelligence failure was part of a more general one of the difficulty for any state at dealing with the multiplicity of elements that come across its desk. I mean, if you're looking, it's worth bearing in mind that there are legions of what we might call intelligence failures in the 20th century you know, two conspicuous ones in 1941, for example, or a uh, or much more interesting one, the Israeli one in 1973, when there was information which should have led them to conclude that they were about to be attacked by Egypt and Syria. But you have to understand, if you're interested in intelligence, that this takes part against a background of an enormous amount of noise. There is continual reports, some of them... Uh, um, from uh, sources that are very difficult to verify it's always difficult to understand how human intelligence and signal- signals intelligence interact now there is then the separate question to that which you built in is did the foreign office fail to understand more generally that what one might call in your terms appeasement uh, was not going to work Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I think the Foreign Office had a particular task, um, which was to try and manage uh, Britain's interests. In terms of imperial legacies, um, and we can think of Gibraltar in the same light, the Falklands at the stage of 1982, still British positions in the Pacific, Um, and indeed in the Caribbean, you can think at that stage that really the general emphasis in government, in parliament and in the public is to focus on other um, foreign policy and geopolitical issues. And the tendency over empire had been to try and have a process of disengagement. Now, the particular problem in the Falklands and also in Gibraltar. And one might add also in what we were talking about last time, which was Northern Ireland, is that the majority of the population were loyal to the British Crown and wished to stay under Britain. Equally the case in Pitcairn, for example, or in some of the areas where Britain, the Cayman Islands. Now, I think it's fair to say that the Foreign Office never was particularly good at handling that. I think that that is a reasonable point. Um, Equally, I think it was surprising that Argentina went to the extent of mounting an invasion. So that what one has then got to consider is why did deterrence fail, which is a different issue entirely. Does deterrence fail because one is explicitly or implicitly, by design or by failure, sending a message which seems to lead the other side to assume that they will be able to do what they want, which, as you may know, is an argument used, fairly or unfairly, to describe uh, American relations with Iraq in 1990. The argument, as you know, is that America wanted Iraq to balance Iran, and Iraq was bust. And that it may well have, in effect, uh, sent a message to the to you know that if they got their money from Kuwait, it wasn't in the bigger picture of things against American interests. We don't know. Um, There is a persistent report to that effect. We don't know. So we can have the same question over the Falklands: Was there any? affect the assumption growing that the Foreign Office, possibly uh, its influence being felt more directly under a future Labour government, and remember at this stage, the widespread assumption was that Mrs Thatcher would only be a one-term Prime Minister, that a Labour government with the Foreign Office um, would actually go along for some notion of shared sovereignty maybe something like uh, the New Hebrides, Vanuatu, where there's, of course, shared severity between Britain and France. Who knows? Um, uh, It appeared to be the case. Many felt that the Foreign Office was not taking a sufficiently vigorous line in defence of the interests of Gibraltarians. Um, There was also a view that there wasn't always a robust enough British governmental line over Northern Ireland. Now, you can debate the rights or wrongs, one's views on all of these points. What is very hard is to be absolutely conclusive. But at any rate, it appears to be the case that the Argentinians had convinced themselves, maybe because of a lack of British naval presence in the South Atlantic, they had convinced themselves that the British would not respond, that they would accept a fate. accompli, might even be pleased by a fate. accompli, which was a, certainly the last was a misreading of the British political system, and the others were a misreading of Mrs. Thatcher. But looked at differently, what one has to accept is that there was a widespread global perception that Britain was in a state of collapse. Uh, There had been uh, the failure of the Heath administration in the face of the miners in 1973, 1974, Um, the who governs Britain election, in which the electorate had decided not for the Conservatives but for a Labour Party in hock to um, uh, sort of whatever phrase you wish to use, but I don't think it would be favourable about the trade unions in the period. The fiscal crisis of the IMF, the sense that Britain as an independent player had declined because of joining the European economic community, you can debate that one way or the other, that was certainly a perception widely held, not least among former uh, areas to which Britain had been linked, and of course Argentina had been part of the so-called informal empire, and then there'd been the winter of discontent or apparent collapse in 78, 79, and in na- 1981, in case people tend to forget this, there was large-scale riot in a number of British cities, most prominently London and Liverpool, and an abject failure of much of the political cadre um, to be anything other than clearly hoping that Mrs Thatcher would go quickly. So in that context, the Argentinian decision doesn't have to uh, rely on, shall we say, people are adopting an inappropriate attitude in the Foreign Office.
1: Well, I mean, clearly, as events were to transpire, uh, Buenos Aires did misread Margaret Thatcher's resolve, at the very least, if not necessarily all of the uh, political establishment in Britain. But I'm conscious of what seems to me to be um, a a a fatal uh, decision to go too quickly on behalf of the Argentinians, not only if they'd waited until... Uh, John Knott's defence review had gone through, um, the British wouldn't have had the carriers HMS Hermes and Illustrious, which they used for the retaking the four. Yeah, of- but
0: can I just say, I can I just say, you've got to understand most people set their political agenda not by their opponents, but by their own considerations. Now their own considerations in this term were the uh, jostling for position within the hunter. Mm. The hunters need, desire, for success, the dynamic it is operating on. So if you look at a modern corollary, you could or could not, we could discuss this, possibly we should discuss it, argue that China has particular policies vis-a-vis Tibet, sorry, vis-a-vis Taiwan, and um, expansionist Uh, views, which these have been publicly stated, and not just, um, you could argue that their policy is set by their assumptions about the American response. Or you could say, if you wanted to be more sophisticated, that plays a role. Clearly, it would be bizarre to argue it didn't. But ultimately, the factors are dynamic within the um, Chinese political establishment, and how they are seeing their position. And as you may know, I don't like sort of just referring to my own work, but it is there and it is a very important corpus, the most substantial corpus of any historian uh, now alive. As you know, I have written very extensively on foreign policy decision-making over the years, And I have always argued that the tendency to see an abstraction, Argentina, Britain, France, as if this is a coherent body, which can make its policy in a deliberative fashion, in full command of the information, not only about itself, but about the others the other side, both potential allies and potential opponents. I don't think that's the case. Well, let's go bluntly. I think it's naive. I think a lot of work is postulated on that respect. I think it's very flawed. And just as... the uh, regime in China, government in China, or indeed in any other state, I mean, this is not specific to China, has to consider its position domestically and its tensions within it. So the same was true of Argentina. Had Argentina waited, the military situation might well have been very different, but not necessarily the political situation. In other words, if you were convinced, as an Argentine strategist, that the British were weak, lacking will, feeble, then it really didn't matter how many warships they had or didn't have, they were not likely to use them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And or the Americans might stop them using them.
1: Yes. But there's also-
0: so so, so, so now all I'm trying to say is one shouldn't assume it is the not defence review that is the only player in the, in the table. And again, linked to that... It's a question of how you use your military resources. The British could have had no carriers, and they could have had their um, submarines emerge off the river plate willing to fire non-ballistic missiles at Buenos Aires by way of delivering a message. So it is not the case that the only thing in the equation were the aircraft carriers. And in fact, you could say they were, in many respects, a more vulnerable uh, military. I mean, look at it another way around. Let us say the British had had their aircraft carriers, as they did, and those had then been sunk by the Argentinians. You know, where are we going to move forward from there? So, actually, possessing a military asset does not necessarily lead to a foregone conclusion. It, it may indeed lead we might discover this with the Queen Elizabeth, to the present aircraft carrier, it may indeed lead to more complications. Mm
1: -hmm. There's also a a shorter-term time frame that was significant, though, as well. I I believe the uh, original Argentinian invasion plan was for May, which would have then You were getting towards the uh, South Atlantic winter, which would have been a very difficult period for the British to... Uh, mount a, um, a a task force to attempt to get the islands back but the uh, invasion was brought forward to April which did give about a, a two to three month window for the, the task force to complete its operation after which it would have been a lot more difficult. I'm not saying impossible but a lot more difficult.
0: Yes I mean South Atlantic like South Pacific like Southern Ocean wind um, waters uh, the roaring 40s, the fiery 50s, etc., cetera, are really difficult. Um, and obviously, apart from those, you've got the situation of less visibility. You, you know, there's all sorts of issues that come into play. So you're absolutely right. If you were going to mount a military response, we're talking here about Britain, it had to be quick. Um, it had to also be effective. What the British couldn't afford was to get an expeditionary force down to the South Atlantic, uh, whether they landed them or not on the Falkland Islands, and then have an unpass. So you had to deliver a rapid response and then bring that to rapid victory. Now, the issue there is that what that then means Is that you have in effect to suspend the diplomatic process unless it's going to lead to the other side backing down, which is highly unlikely. Now, the contrast, if you want to look for a contrast, is the slow British build up to the Suez Crisis in 56, which we've decided, which we've discussed, which they didn't move rapidly enough on. Interestingly enough, if you're looking at islands um, in this period, of course, there is a tremendous contrast. I mean, it is politically and diplomatically much more different, although it does raise the question of whether the military option taken um, would have uh, worked, um, the second option taken, which is the obvious one, which I'm surprised most people haven't thought about, um, which is the Americans in Cuba. The Americans in Cuba, of course, tried an indirect um Uh, action in 61, and then in 62, full-scale blockade. Um, Full-scale blockade would have been very, very difficult because it would have required in the context of 82 in the Falklands air interdiction, which would have been impossible uh, given the respective weight of the air powers of both sides and the difficulty for carriers sustaining their position in the South Atlantic. Um, But, I mean, all one needs to remember is that leaving things to be drawn out does not always improve the matter. I mean, I so happen to think that Mrs Thatcher acted with pertinacity and resolution, both of which were crucial. Uh, She knew the military would do the job, which I think was, again, very important. There were um, no um, uh, sort of military military saying, we don't want to do this. We think this is ill-advised. Our main commitment is the NATO commitment. This is not what we are supposed to be doing. Um, So I think that was a very important aspect of the crisis, which doesn't tend to take Uh, sufficient attention, because, of course, there was an alternative strategy, which was to simply say, look, your job is to confront the Soviet Union. This is a second-order priority or a third-order priority. This isn't very good. I mean, you must remember, I take it you do remember, that 83 was a year in which the Cold War very nearly went hot again, as I discussed in my book on the Cold War. Uh, There was a widespread assumption in the beginning of the 80s linked to the deployment of um, new Soviet missiles in Eastern Europe and to the the attempt by the West to respond uh, to knowledge of Soviet operational techniques and developments. Uh, There was a widespread belief that um, World War Three might be about to break down. In which case, you—it's a legitimate question to say, "What the hell are we doing?" Having much of our naval assets at the bottom of the South Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, I mean, I personally think that Mrs. Thatcher made the right response. But I'm—you know—I'm very interested in strategy, and it is a naive strategist who assumes there is only one way of looking at a situation.
1: Mm-hmm. How, how significant it was. Um, British possession of, of Ascension Island in the logistics and resupplying of the task force?
0: Well, I mean, Ascension Island was more particularly significant because the, it was an enormous American air base with which we had a role. And the Americans were very happy to provide aviation fuel and so on. I mean, and that, you know, talking about differences of opinion, the American political establishment and government agencies were really divided over the Falklands War. Uh, Defence under Weinberger, very, very pro-British. State, much less pro-British, much more concerned about relations in Latin America, worried that if the Argentinian junta fell that it would be replaced by left-wing elements. Um, You know, disinclined to see the diversion from... uh, the NATO task, and also there was the widespread view um, that this was a, a late imperial war. Now, it wasn't because of, you know, the view which we can discuss in second. but if we just take that, that both provide, the, the politics of it is very interesting, the politics of it in the United States, the politics of it in Britain. Now, within the cabinet context, I think the best guide is the excellent triple volume uh, book by uh, Charles Moore, because I think that's more politically profound than the survey of the Falklands War itself by uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Friedman, which I don't think was so politically astute. Um, now, um, but of course, uh, Charles Moore's job was not really to look at it in the broader pattern of British politics. Now, the most interesting thing is how the Labour Party completely completely wrong-footed itself. Um, the uh, foot, of course, had made his name um, with, you know, 12 angry men or whatever it was, 11 angry men. You know, the attack on the Tories over appeasement.
1: Guilty
0: men, yeah, guilty men yes. Um, and he thought that this was going to be another case of Britain appeasing a, um, you know, fascist dictator. And in fact, took that line in the House of Commons, when of course, Thatcher was then able to say, well, I've ordered a task force to go to the South Atlantic, which cut the legs under him. Then on top of that, Labour was divided, and it divided Labour more than the tourists. for Mrs Thatcher was in trying to make sure that the Americans were as favourable as possible trying to thwart any peace intermediary, whether it was America or the Pope, that tried to dream up a uh, an unjust uh, peace in order to um, avoid um, a war, however just. You know, that was that way of looking at it. Um, and also linked to that, the British presence in um, the United Nations. Britain wanted to counter any United Nations um, uh, moves against Britain, and they were worried there about the decolonization line. And lastly, there was views about trying to make sure that other powers adopted either a friendly stance, as with Chile allowing the use of air bases, or uh, did not operate an unfriendly stance, as with France providing um, munitions to, to Argentina. Uh, and on the whole, The British did very well at that. Um, There was a lot of criticism of Britain, but there would have been a lot of criticism anyway. But I think it's fair to say that, um, however, I mean, you know, you get the situation at the present day, as uh, as Melanie Phillips was pointing out in The Times uh, only two days ago. uh, Governments like the Palestinian Authority regularly torture dissidents and journalists, and yet... Um, left wingers seem to find that perfectly acceptable. Well, even for left wingers who hated Britain, there was something a bit much about uh, praising the Argentinian hunter, which really was, you know, a torture chamber government. Mm. Well,
1: one of one of the controversies, obviously, was um, the uh, submarine HMS Conqueror sinking. The Argentine battle cruiser General Belgrano. Um, how big a threat did the Belgrano uh, pose to the uh, task force, um, or would it have posed had it not been sunk?
0: Well, it was the li- it was the largest ship so far sunk uh, by um, military action, naval action since World War Two. Um, it would have been very uh, negligent when you put your own armed forces at risk, you would definitely be failing in your duty of care if you do not try and remove, by remove, let's be clear about this, I think there were 321 fatalities on the Argentinian ship, but if you do not try and remove uh, other military units that are threatening. If the Argentinians had not wanted the Belgrano sunk, they should have kept her in port, which they did with their aircraft carrier.
1: The failure of the Argentine Navy to play a significant part in the conflict after the Belgrano sinking—was uh, w- w- that a direct response to the sinking of the Belgrano and the desire not to put that their fleet at, at risk, or actually it, w- did the nature of the Argentine Navy uh, mean that, that attacking by air force was a was a, a more obvious uh, strategy?
0: Well, I think um, the Argentinian Navy was clearly outclassed. The sinking of the Belgrano demonstrated it. The 25th of May, which was the name of their aircraft carrier, was not a brilliant ship. I mean, I I noticed it had been built by us as the venerable in World War II and sold to the Dutch in 1948. It wasn't in the peak of condition. And I think, to be fair, sinking the Belgrano probably saved a lot of lives, because otherwise I think that the aircraft carrier would have gone down, plus its escort ships. Um, Now, as far as the uh, air power is concerned, I mean, the British were operating at the end of an extreme range. They were short of uh, air capacity um, uh, locally, and that gave the Argentinians a lot of opportunities to um, attack British shipping. Uh, the Argentinians had brave pilots, uh, they had pretty good missiles, and they had reasonably good planes. So they were a formidable task. Um, and it's, you know, it was greatly to the credit of the British um, pilots that using essentially, um, you know, I mean, they'd all been practicing, but essentially these are unplanned activities in the sorry, not unplanned, untrained for under combat condition, you know, people firing back at you. And they did a fantastic job um, in really very, very difficult circumstances. And um they um they sufficiently countered Argentinian air um, power to enable a concentration of the fleet and preparations for the landing. And that, I think, uh, was what you could ask of them. To have attained air superiority over the region was clearly too great a task, given the resources available. Mm,
1: So um, the Argentine... Forces. They're dug in uh, primarily around the, the capital, uh, Stanley. Uh, there's various ranges of hills around that. Um, a, a lot of East Falkland is quite boggy and inhospitable terrain, very difficult to move uh, artillery pieces or any kind of heavy forces across it. The decision, therefore, to, of the British to land in, in between West and East Falkland at San Carlos Water, Uh, What was the thinking behind that strategy, given um, the distance they would then have to travel over difficult terrain to reach Stanley?
0: Well, um, can I just say, actually, you were mentioning about the terrain. You're right. If you want to visualise it, um, you're from Scotland. Think about some parts of Caithness or Sutherland. All right, uh, except off road. So you know, so uh, difficult terrain, certain amount of waterlogging, rocky soil, unpleasant. Um, the British correctly identified Port Stanley as the target. It wasn't good enough to just land a force and dig in. The Argentinian force, which was considerably larger had to be defeated and forced to surrender. So they land close enough to make a march on Port Stanley possible, but far enough away to provide them with an opportunity um, to produce a logistical base, which is relatively safe from ground attack, less so, as you know, from attack by Argentinian aircraft, which of course tragically was the case. Now, as you will know, There are various debates about the specifics of the operation, about the attack on Goose Green, for example, Um, and there is no doubt about the strain of the operation. Uh, The British were running short of artillery shells, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, They did have problems with um, Argentinian air power, and they did have problems posed by the the extent to which the Argentinians had... Positioned themselves, dug in doesn't always describe the terrain, but positioned themselves on a series of hills uh, protecting Port Stanley. On the other hand, um, the British gained and took and used successfully the initiative, so determining the axis of attack. The Argentinian defending, defending forces weren't able to offer each other sufficient mutual support. Argentinian morale was below that of the British, which was very important. The British made good use of artillery. Um, The British also were good at close combat operations. So it was a significant triumph the infantry work. Now, the infantry, of course, came from a number of different services, uh, sorry, you know, a number of different units, I should say, including non-army units. Um, but uh, it was a classic example of the value of infantry and the mistake of assuming, not that any In the military, would assume this that whatever might be the best case weapon, let us say a heavy tank, is going to be particularly useful because obviously it wasn't tank terrain, it's too far to take tanks, etc. 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 So, I think actually it was a tremendous military achievement. Um, Now, you might say that some of the Argentinian units. were not cutting edge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of which would be true. But nevertheless, the task was a difficult one. The terrain, the weather, the logistics was difficult. And it was achieved with a, you know, a very low rate of British casualty. Um, and there were mistakes. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that the attack on Goose Green was was a mistake. Um, and the failure to get everything, everybody out of the water at um um, yes, the, you know, it was also a mistake. But nevertheless, it was handled well.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about the uh, quality and supply of the Argentinian troops. There were various attempts to bomb uh, Stanley Airport, uh, but the airport wasn't really taken out entirely. Uh, were the Argentinian um, troops able to be continually resupplied during the period of the conflict, or were they beginning to run low on supplies themselves?
0: Well, I think it's fair to say that the Argentinians had moved their air units um, further south in Argentina, in other words, so that they were closer uh, to the Falklands rather than being concentrated near uh, Buenos Aires. Um, I think it's fair to say that there was, at least among some of the troops there, a sense that they had been forgotten. But I think we can take it a stage further than this. There were systemic problems in the Argentinian army, which were similar to those in the Iraqi army. And that was this, two main ones. One The promotion was on merit, but merit was construed in terms of political loyalty, not in terms of military ability. So that was a major problem. And number two is very poor relations between and a lack of engagement between officers and troops, whereas the British Army, the British Army's had its problems, we know that, but the British Army, in contrast, or British forces, I should say, in the Falklands, Uh, because obviously it's not just the army, Um, you have neither of those factors. You have promotion on merit in terms of an ability to discharge military tasks, and you have the coherence, the unit cohesion of good relations between officers and troops which enable people to keep going when situations do not develop as anticipated or, indeed, when they do develop as anticipated. Each of those pose problems, um, uh, problems of resilience, persistence, and adaptability. And in the crisis of conflict, the Argentinians didn't respond with the kind of, rapid flexibility that they needed and I think there's a good parallel there with the Iraqis in 91 and the Iraqis in 2003 Um, and it's an interesting book as you may know by a chap called Kenneth Pollock on the fighting effectiveness of Arab armies. Um, Now there's problems with that book uh, but nevertheless he does capture cultural uh, elements, political cultural elements that weaken them. Now I don't wish to shock a Latin American because many of those I'm afraid to say are racists Um, but there are many elements similar to that in Latin America and after you think if all if you think about it um, if you're a Latin American commander at that point your military experience might well have been based on brutalizing demonstrators and supposed terrorists, real terrorists, however you wish to look at it, um, which is not an experience that was going to help them in these circumstances. So the Argentinians, um, they were a significant challenge for the British. They didn't all surrender. You know, it wasn't a rate of surrender when the British arrived. But nevertheless, it was not as if the British were up against shall we say, one of the other leading armies of the period, let us say the Israeli army, to have fought the Israeli army in 1982, and the Israelis were up against, you know, they were in the early 80s fighting Syria and Hezbollah. Um, um, uh, but to fight to fight against uh, the Israeli army would have been a more formidable task. Um And I think the British were fortunate in their opponents, though not fortunate in the sphere of operations, because that was a long way away and very difficult.
1: Um, I've heard it said that the the British had some advantages. They had uh, uh, some night goggles. They had um, better field communication systems. But in many ways, the quality of the arms that the British forces had um, during the conflict were uh, on land were not particularly different to those that the Argentinian army was using against them, and in many ways the arms being used weren't that different to those that would have been familiar to veterans of the Second World War. Is that your understanding?
0: Yes, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, obviously there are particular areas in which there were strengths and weaknesses, but if you're looking at i mean there's been a, if you're looking at wars as a whole in the in the 19, eight, 1970s and 1980s there are often specific weapons characteristics that help one side as opposed to another so there's been good work for example on the israelis vis-a-vis the syrians in this respect but usually it comes down to very different Questions of fighting quality, unit cohesion, morale, leadership, tactical adroitness—these are obviously overlapping criteria. And I think you're not going to be terribly helped if you just think in terms of is this, for example, if you're looking at the Middle East, a better tank or not. Um, The British, in my mind, the British were helped by a real understanding of the nature of infantry warfare by the ability to use artillery well, and Britain has always had a good artillery basis in its army, by the extent to which the Argentinians were not able to deter the British task force, both its naval and air components, from aiding the British Forces on land. Once the latter was on land, I think that was a very important element, and linked to the last, from the British ability in this war to achieve what is often very difficult, which was integrated conflict. Um, now that's often very difficult, and there were obviously irritations, and as is always the way, the people wrote about their irritations. But nevertheless, I think what one's got is a successful example of a integrated military. You know, we're now we're now talking about people who, well, as indeed we were talking about with Northern Ireland, who survived to the present, uh, and those who. Uh, who didn 't survive, they have their relatives alive. We ought to say what a tremendous job they did. We ought to sh- to say that, insofar as there is any meaning in the term a just war, and I think there is meaning in that term, a lot of meaning. Uh, it was a just war. We ought to say it was quite clearly in the national interest. I think those are section one, so we need to honor those who risked and those who lost their lives. But the second point is I think it's something that often Those who are um, of a different generation find it difficult to understand that there was a malaise in Britain in the 1970s, a strong sense of malaise across um, the political spectrum and in all areas of the country. And I think it's true that the Falklands Islands not only... um, Uh, liberated the islanders from rule by a a, a tyrannical, torturing regime, but also was really important in a recovery of mood and energy and direction in Britain. And I think that was very important, not just for Britain, but I think also for uh, the West and the Cold War as a whole. I think, you know, Mrs Thatcher had her limitations. Uh, but if Mrs. Thatcher had lost to Michael Foote in the 83 general election, I think one needs to be very sceptical to, as to whether we would have held off the challenge of the National Union of Miners, which was extremely left wing, and more particularly, since this was globally important, it would have very much handicapped the Americans uh, in the last stages of the Cold War. So the success at the Falklands was an important, however much some Americans didn't wish to understand it, but it was important just as beating the IRA was important, again, however much a lot of Americans didn't want to understand that, was important in the West's fate in the 1980s, in a period in the beginning of the 80s of acute competition with the Soviet Union, and in the end of the 80s, at ensuring that the difficulties faced by the Soviet Union led to the withdrawal of Soviet forces from Eastern Europe.
1: Well, we'll be picking up on those themes in the next episode of this podcast about the various 20th century deployments of the British armed forces, but for now... Professor Jeremy Blair, thank you
0: very much. Thank you.
1: If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe today? Right now we're offering five issues for just £10. Go to thecritic.co.uk and click subscribe.